Well, it is still, yeah, morning. Good morning, First Methodist Mansfield. There we go. All right. It is uh, a true delight to be here with you today. Uh, if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, I'm Julian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it is my great joy to be able to bring this, the last message of the year. Uh, hopefully you had a wonderful Christmas celebration and that you have recovered and are ready for the message on today, having rested from all of the labor that is Christmas celebration. And again, it's just a joy to have you here. Um, this last week is always an interesting week uh, as far as I'm concerned because it's a time for us to reflect, time for us to look backwards over the course of the year and then think about how we might go into this next year. We're looking backwards in order to find a way forward. And it's my belief that really the question we're answering more than anything else is how might we go into this next year and live a good life? I think we're ultimately endeavoring to, to find robust answers to that question. How do we go about the task of living a good life? Now, I'm going to begin saying something that will not be a shock to any of you. If you've at all been paying attention to the world around you, if you've seen the news on any level, or you check Facebook at any point in time, we live in a hyper-polarized society. That is the look I was expecting when I wrote that down, that you're not shocked by that. We live in a hyper-polarized society. And the difficulty of that is that the thing that is on display really is just our differences. The thing that takes center stage is the ways in which we are different, which is unfortunate because the reality is, is there is more that should unite us than tends to divide us. Now, to be sure, we have differences. Uh, I got a really good glimpse of this this past week during the Christmas Eve services. So if you were here for them, you know that they ended basically the same way. Pastor David would give a benediction and he would wish everyone a very Merry Christmas. The lights would come up and then uh, they would play light Christmas carol music as people left. Uh, and it was really nice. It was really cool. It was really sweet. And then by about the sixth service, I was like, guys, we got to do something different. There's only so many times I can listen to, I wish you a Merry Christmas. We got to do something else. So I was just with production and we were hanging out. And at one point, I think I'd mentioned something to the effect of wanting to hear This Christmas by Donny Hathaway. I'm trying to see if anyone knows that song. All right. I'll see you in the back. All right. One. Uh, <laughs> So there we go. So I love that song. When I hear that song, it just feels like Christmas. And then sure enough, after the two o'clock service on Christmas Eve, service ended, lights went up, Pastor David tell everybody Merry Christmas, and then this Christmas played. And I was overjoyed. I felt like I had been christmas It was great. And I was in the back, right there by that timpani, just grooving, hang on the mistletoe, I'm gonna get to And I looked over and nobody else was dancing. It was just me, no one else knew the song, no one else knew the artist, just Julian having a good time and I did not care, kept on grooving. <laughs> and I say that to say we have differences. <laughs> we see the world differently, but what that really amounts to is we have different ways of meeting the same desires. We basically want the same things. We want our loved ones to be safe. We want to be deeply known and deeply loved. We want to live a good life. And the question that comes up for us then is, what does it mean to live a good life? What constitutes a good life? 
We have some difference on that. Uh, it's the reason why we have a million and one self-help books and why there are instant experts all over YouTube and Instagram that have 48 hours worth of knowledge and experience. And they're all trying to tell you the same thing, how to live your best life. But my contention, my foray into that conversation is this, that a good life is the life lived in which you are being and becoming the most you, you, that you actually are. I'll say that again. A good life is a life lived in which you are being and becoming the most you, you, that you actually are. It's a simple statement, but it's really rife with several complexities. Like, how do we come to live into our truest selves? Many of us spend several years trying to be something we aren't for people we think are important for reasons we don't fully understand or even really care about. We're trying to keep up with the Joneses or keep up with the Kardashians. We're running this rat race and we get to the end of the race looking for this trophy of significance and importance ultimately to get to the end unfulfilled. We do all these things to, to gather the accoutrements of success and really a big house when you're unhappy is just a lot of room for you to be unhappy in. Y'all don't be, don't be bashful. You can feel free. Look, it's 11 o'clock. We had the last service, guys. We got to do this together, all right? So here's my contention. I believe you can never be the most you, you, apart from a relationship with God. Because in knowing God, we come to know best know our truest selves. So this, this example I've used in the last four services that I've preached this message, and each time I get a look on, my, on you guys' face, like, how is this related? I promise you it will make sense. Stay with me. So when I was in high school, uh, back when I actually had hair, y'all are laughing a little too much. It's not that funny. Uh, <laughs> Back when I had hair, I had these white, righteous, wavy locks. I was really proud of my hair. And uh, my mom would buy Alberto VO5 shampoo and conditioner. See a couple folks nodding. Y'all know about the Alberto VO5. So my mom would buy this Alberto VO5 shampoo and conditioner. Now, my, I had two brothers, and we knew that the shampoo was translucent. The conditioner was opaque. The shampoo washed your hair. And the conditioner did something else. I still, to this day, I'm not fully sure I understand what the purpose of conditioner is. I just use it, well, not so much anymore, but <laughs> I used it because it's what my mama bought. So she bought Alberto V5 shampoo and conditioner. And there, I have a specific memory of remembering she had bought once Alberto V5 jojoba shampoo and Alberto V5 jojoba conditioner. And I was in the shower washing my righteous wavy locks and uh, I found myself on that occasion reading the label I don't know why I must have had plenty of time so I'm in the shower and I just apparently needed something to read so I'm reading the instructions on the back of the Alberto V5 jojoba shampoo and I remember reading a, a section that said for best results use Alberto V5 jojoba shampoo with Alberto V5 jojoba conditioner now 
I read it and thought, this is a crock. Like, this is really just a way for Alberto VL5 to make money. You got to buy one, then you have to buy the other, right? Kind of like the way Apple did when they changed the lightning port to the whatever they got now. Now you got to buy extra chargers. They're just making more money. And then it eventually, it came to me that if you want, it was that one phrase, for best results. For best results, you've got to heed the manufacturer's instructions because the manufacturer is intimately involved with the design of the product. The manufacturer knows the product better than the consumer. The manufacturer made the product to work specifically well with specific things. Now, you can get a result ignoring the manufacturer, but for best results, you got to heed the manufacturer's instructions. And such is the case with our lives. If you want to get the most yield out of your life, if you want your life to produce the good life, the best life that you can live, then it requires you to go back to the one that gives yourself a self. You got to go back to the manufacturer, which is simply to say that a relationship with God is the key to a good life. Amen. Don't be bashful with the amens. Amen. Y'all, we all in here together. The key to a good life is a relationship with God. So how does one go about living a good life? It's to that question that we come to our text for the day. We're going to go through a, a familiar passage of Scripture together. We're going to do it briefly. Uh, this is one that has gotten me through some difficult times, through some unsure times. It's one of my favorites, and it's Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, on the backs of the pews in front of you are Bibles, and it's going to be on that page number. And that text reads this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Now, I grew up in a church in Houston and it was a church that always read text in the King James. And there are some verses I can only hear through King James language. So I grew up with this verse saying, trust in the Lord with all thy heart. Lean not to thine own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Some translations said that he will make your pathways straight. Now, this text in, in the book of Proverbs is situated with a, with a specific kind of impetus and uh, a desire. The book of Proverbs itself is primarily concerned with teaching wisdom. Now, this isn't teaching or giving wisdom the way that a fortune cookie might. This isn't like a short, pithy aphorism that could be applied to anything, right? Like, if you're going to go, go with courage, which could be applied to storming the enemy camp or going to the bathroom, right? So like, it's not, it's not doing that. There's something much more significant at play. Like what, what Proverbs is interested in doing is teaching wisdom in such a way that it creates proficiency with the person that's receiving the wisdom. And the object of that is, is that a person would receive wisdom and they would so master it that they could then teach wisdom to the subsequent generations. And so in the Jewish heritage, that was, that was part of what the heritage was, was capturing, telling, and retelling the history and tradition. So because they understood that history and tradition bind us together. So in a real sense, Proverbs is primarily concerned with passing along wisdom from one generation to the next. Now, wisdom itself 
is concerned with offering insight into the world and the ways in which we might best live in the world. In the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, where this text is situated, it is a discourse between a father and son. And the father is giving his son advice. And there's these extended poems that all amount to the same thing. But in doing so, the father, uh, he illustrates two primary characters, Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. And these two, uh, these two entities are roaming the earth, calling out to whoever will listen. Now, the way the father articulates the story is that you're going to listen to one voice or the other, but a voice will be heard, and that voice will have influence on your life. Wisdom, which is characterized by, by selflessness, by seeking God, by finding God's way in your life, and folly, which is characterized by self-desire and pleasure, and is only interested as far as the nose is in front of your face. Now, the father is telling the son, and the author is telling us that uh, the way to a good life means the following. Living a good life requires me to trust in the Lord with all my heart. Trusting God means I can't just lean to my own understanding. And in order for us to trust God, we must always remember that it was God that changed our lives, not we ourselves. And it is incumbent upon us to acknowledge God in all of that work. The, the Jews understood this, that wisdom isn't just about intellect. It isn't just about knowledge. It is about the gathering of knowledge and the practice of that knowledge in a way that produces skill. It's the coupling of knowledge and practice together that produces skill. And in so doing, you develop this unique skill of building a good life. So if we're going to live a good life, it first requires that we trust in the Lord with all our heart. Now, I'm giving this message for the fourth time this weekend, and each time is the same. I'm, I'm standing here saying these words to you, knowing and believing this to be true, and at the same time recognizing the difficulty of what I'm saying. That trust is not a thing that comes easy to us. Trust is a thing that we, we, we give out progressively, and many of us have been hurt and have been abused and neglected and affected negatively by people, and so we don't trust easily. Trust is difficult for us, and it's a tricky word. And so when we read this text, we instinctively know that the trust that's being talked about here is not trust in trivial matters. This is not like I trust you, God, with whether I'm going to go to Luby's or Cheddar's after this service. Something more significant is at play. And we recognize and understand because of our own life experiences that trust really is an act of vulnerability. And we don't too much like that. That's not easy for us to do because it's a removal of reservation, a removal of resistance and, and openness. It's me saying, I trust you, God, with my life and all that I value. I don't withhold anything from you. And, I, and to you, I leap into your arms without looking, without a net. I trust you. But the reality is we only trust insofar as we know. Our level of trust 
is only as strong as the object in which we place that trust. If I said that differently, I would say that trust is equal to our understanding of the capacity of the object receiving our trust. And trust implies relationship and history and time spent together. And it's a thing that is developed over time. And I've learned a ton about trust in the same way that most parents do. I learned it from my kids. They, 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 have, they are teaching me more than I am ever going to teach them. I am grateful for them and, and am sorry because <laughs> they're learning way more from me than I am ever gonna learn. Or they're, I'm learning more from them than they're ever gonna learn from me. So my youngest daughter, Jordan, uh, if you've been around my family any significant amount of time, uh, this won't be a shock to you. Uh, but Jordan is, uh, she's probably out of my three kids, the one that acts the most like me. We used to call her Junior because it was the closest thing that I was going to get to Julian Hobby II, because my wife and I, as far as we are concerned, are done. <laughs> so Junior is it. Uh, <laughs> And Jordan is really, she's kind of like my buddy, you know, like where we're, uh, my middle daughter, uh, Joy, she wants usually like Sonic and Popeyes all the time. Joy wants to go uh, with dad to go to a Japanese restaurant and get ramen. And she doesn't want like, well, she will eat like top ramen at home, but she wants authentic ramen or she wants to go to a Mongolian grill. And I am super sorry for the dude that she marries because it is gonna cost. <laughs> but Jordan is my buddy and we play, we tussle, we wrestle a lot and, uh, and, and I mean, I love all my kids and, and Jordan is, is just fantastic. Um, but also, if you know this, uh, if you know Jordan, you know this to be true. If I'm gone from Jordan for any significant amount of time, that could be two days, two hours, or even just two minutes. Jordan is going to run and jump on me as hard as possible. Now she's not gonna do it to her mom. I think my wife has done a better job of making sure that that's not a reality for them. I have not, it's my fault, I did it to myself. But Jordan is going to run and jump on me as hard as possible. And not that cute, you know, hey, it's my daddy. No, she's gonna like, all right. <laughs> I see you like a tiger waiting to pounce on its prey. And I'm the prey, I'm the wombat that's getting jumped on by this little girl. And so Jordan, she has no issue running and jumping in my arms, but she does this because we've got history together. I don't mean to suggest she does it because I allow it, clearly I do. She does it because she knows some things about me because we've spent time together. She knows something about my ability. She knows that if she jumps on me, I am able to catch her. She knows something about my strength, which is to say that if she jumps on me and I catch her, I'm able to support the weight of the, and velocity she's just thrown at me. She knows something about my heart, which is to say I am primarily always first and foremost concerned about the well-being of my children and their safety. So she knows she can jump on me because she knows her daddy got her, that I'm not going to let her her fall. And so as a result of her knowing me, she trusts me. And the problem we run into is that we don't trust God because we don't know God as well as we think we ought to. And so as a result, we don't trust him like we should. 
Amen, people. That's not just, I know, I, I heard myself say it. The problem is, is that we don't trust God like we ought to. Now, I am right now hearing myself say this and looking at some of your faces and seeing you think, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I have trusted God my entire life. But let life fall out. Let the bottom fall out. Let life happen. And then show me what your first reaction is. And that shows something about where your trust is placed. See, the problem is, is we don't really know God like we need to. We don't know that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. We don't know that God is strong enough to pull us out of the muck and the mire. We don't really know that God has plans for us, for our prosperity, for our hope and the future. Oh, we may have heard it here at church. We may have heard it on a Christian talk radio station. We may have even recited it in the liturgy. But I'm not talking about what you heard. I'm talking about what you know for yourself. I'm talking about trusting God and trusting God with your whole heart and knowing that God is a way maker, that when there was no way to be made, God was the one that carved through mountains a path for you, that God is a healer and a restorer, that God is able to reassemble the shattered pieces of a broken life. I'm talking about trusting God with everything you got. Amen. Amen. And when you have lived a life where you had to rely on God's activity in your life, you know something about what it means to trust God. When you have seen God work things out for you that were impossible to be worked out, that got your kids in school when nobody had the resources, when you have been the beneficiary of God's grace, you know something about what it means to trust God with everything you got. And in trusting God, that means that we can't just lean on our own understanding because the reality is, is God don't do what we want God to do. He does things differently. And if the truth be told, as my mom would say, if the truth be told and the devil be shamed, the reality is, is that we would rather trust ourselves than trust God. The problem we have is that we really think we know best. We really think we know what's the easier way. But if you've lived long enough, you know that easy does not always equal best. In fact, easy typically does not mean best. So we don't really want change. We don't want God to do what God does with lives. We just want God to make our life easier. We really kind of think of God as like the genie in the lamp. Like if I say the right thing, if I go to the right place, if I rub the offering plate the right way, God will just make my life easier. But God is more interested in making your life better than making your life easier. The easy road does not seem to be the road that the Lord travels on. Ask Moses about it. Sent back to a place where he had murdered someone, lived a false life, lived in someone, house's, someone else's house as their grandson, not really their, their grandson, and having done what he had done, left, fled for 40 years, and God sends him right back there 
to free a people from bondage. Ask Abraham who was called to leave everything he had known, leave his father's house, his whole livelihood behind to go to a place that God would eventually tell him. Or ask Christ himself who came to the world, lived a sinless life, and then was crucified by the very people he came to save. God is not in the easy life business. God is in the transformation business, which is to say Christ didn't come to make hard lives easy. He came to make dead things live. Christ came to make lost things found. Christ came to make blinded eyes see and to set oppressed people free. Christ is in the transformation business. Which means for us, in order to trust God, we've got to remember that it is God that is doing the life changing, not we ourselves. And it's incumbent upon us to acknowledge that fact in everything we do. And this is why, I mean, thinking through this, this is why I don't really like the whole picking myself up by my own bootstraps idea. Don't get me wrong. I have worked hard to get to the place I am at in life. And there are people who know me best, who have lived with me long enough, who who themselves are aware how hard I have worked to get to the place that I am. And I'm a person that believes hard work generally produces good results. But the reality is, is that I didn't do it by myself. I got through undergrad because I had a wife that was willing to watch my kids while I was in class and participate in student organizations, which allowed me the freedom to be able to study well, which allowed me the opportunity to get the kind of scholarships I needed to be able to go to grad school. It wasn't just me. And the point comes when I try to forget that and I lose sight of all that was, all that was going on in order for me to get to a certain place, I lose something. This, uh, a, a couple days ago, Jocelyn and I were at a, a friend of ours' birthday party. And uh, this friend knows everybody. I mean, everybody. I'm pretty sure she's got Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit on speed dial. Like, knows everybody. Those of you who are regular attenders here, you know Susan Luttrell. Uh, and she's basically the black Susan Luttrell. Like, just knows everybody. So we go to this place and the place, is, we go to this venue for her birthday celebration and it's a restaurant and, and it's packed, it's full of people. Um, and they eventually bring her up to be able to give thanks and to, to say whatever she wanted to say because it was her birthday. And she did that, she gave, she gave her thanks. At one point I made a joke to my wife like, you know, there are some people here at this restaurant that don't know who this lady is. And they're just sitting here listening to her give thanks but they just gotta endure it because we here for her. And then we look up and she didn't hop to every table like, oh, everyone in here is here for you, oh. So she starts thanking all these different people and then it's over and it's done and it was real sweet and she cried and it was, it was beautiful, she was overwhelmed. And eventually Joss and I were getting ready to go and we were giving her a hug and then it dawned on her, she hadn't thanked two people, her husband, and the person who was over the venue that gave her the space. And my wife, in typical my wife fashion, she went on the stage and asked the musician not to play another song and let this lady come up so she could say something else. And I stood over in the corner just looking like the dude that drove her there and watching her be awesome while I was just trying to go home. Uh, And 
The woman proceeded to thank her husband and the person over the venue. And I recognized something in that moment that acknowledgement is a, there's a real power in acknowledgement, not just for the one being, not for the ones being acknowledged, but for the one doing the acknowledging. It's the same thing that I go through and remember every day, every day that I go to class and I'm in seminary, I am remembering that I am standing on the backs and shoulders of giants. It, that me getting to this place is the result of a ton of work on not just my part. I didn't pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I didn't give myself my first job. I didn't give myself an education. I didn't teach myself to read. I didn't even buy my own first pair of boots. Somebody else had to do it. And I recognized it in recognizing them and acknowledging them, I learned something about myself, that I am deeply loved, that there is someone else in this world that is concerned about my well-being. And because of that encouragement, I'm able to wrestle demons and alligators and bears and lions and tigers because I got people in my corner. And acknowledging God is the same thing. When we realize it was God that changed our lives. It teaches us to remember that God is with us everywhere we go, in every trial, in every triumph, in every celebration, and in every tribulation. God is there for all of it. And it's on us to remember it. And acknowledging God is just simply knowing the truth of our life story. That if if your life is a solar system, If there's a planet for your success, a planet for your hobbies, a planet for your education, a planet for your family, a planet for your hobbies, a planet for everything that goes on with you, God has got to be the sun in the center of that orbit whose light and heat and rays touch every planet all at the same time. And that's what a good life is, a life well aligned, a life that recognizes that there is something more than just you in the world pushing and promoting and, and building and developing you, calling you, drawing you. That's what a good life is. This past weekend, yesterday in fact, I had the opportunity to see what a good life looks like. A former colleague of mine, a good friend and a mentor recently lost his wife just before Christmas and her funeral was yesterday. And I got a call from him asking if I would help do some stuff for the service, and I graciously accepted. And in going, I learned some things. Primarily, maybe more than anything else, that a good life outlives the one living that life. A good life outlives the person living that life. The funeral was at a a church that was one of our larger churches in our conference, and uh, and it was packed. Imagine this sanctuary being about 80 to 85% full. All the lives she had touched, all the ways in which she had made a difference in the world, those people came to recognize that life and to speak about the joy they had in experiencing that life. A good life outlives the person living the life. The husband, he gave a tribute to his wife and he said three things that he loved and was going to miss about his wife. He said that he loved the way that she laughed because in laughing she was filled with joy. Now, to know her is to know that that joy was not a joy that was just humor and and joviality. 
right? That that joy was what Nehemiah described as the joy of the Lord, which is my strength. Because this was a woman who had fought disease and ailment and had been in the hospital for years and yet still managed every time you were around her to be the light in the room. I remember seeing her at uh, different services that I would play at, that she would come to, uh, walking in slowly, challenging me (laughs) to make sure I did things better and brightened up a room when she walked in. That kind of joy is a joy that comes from knowing and having a relationship with God. But not only did the husband love the way that she laughed, but he loved the way that she loved. Because in loving, she represented that God's love was both possible and effective in the world. And not only did he love the way that she loved, loved the way that she laughed, but he loved the way that she gave. Because in giving, she was most like Christ. This is the tribute that this man gave about his wife. And it's to that point that I leave you with this statement, that a good life is a life that is inextricably tied to a relationship with God, a real relationship that produces change and transformation in the life of the individual so that the individual can produce change and transformation in the life of the world. And that's what it means to live a good life. And so as we leave today, two more days left in the year. It's incumbent upon us to make the decision now about the kind of life we're going to live. You're either going to listen to wisdom or folly, but you're going to listen. And my charge to you is to make the choice to live a good life, a life where you get to be the most you that you actually are, a life rightly related to God. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for this day, for this time, for this hour, and for this message. For teaching us what it might mean to live a good life. My prayer is that these words would be convicting for all of us, that they would be encouraging for all of us, that they would be enlivening for all of us and they would propel us to ourselves live a good life that is rightly related to you. So help us to live that life that honors you and brings change in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.